Hello and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly intersectional dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to you from Sydney. This week, we have a guest who is a cyber psychologist and expert in digital well-being. Her name is Jocelyn Brewer, and she's passionate about educating people around having a healthy relationship with tech in their lives so that they can be in control of their digital nutrition. No doubt this is going to be a future forward Feminist Fridays, but before we meet Jocelyn, we're going to kick off with a track by St. Vincent called Digital Witness, because we're about to meet an expert digital witness in Jocelyn.
Hi, Jocelyn. Welcome to Feminist Fridays. Thanks so much. (laughs) Pleasure. So I'd like to kick off by asking you where you grew up and what your early influences were. Oh, wow. So I grew up in a little suburb called Barella, which is sort of on the other side of Rookwood Cemetery in the middle of Sydney. Uh, And I live not too far from there, actually, now after spending some time in the inner west, but Sydney born and bred, haven't really ever moved very far away. Um, but early influences, um, oh gosh. Well, look, as a teenager, I first remember being quite obsessed with, um, Tori Amos, actually. That was a nice early influence. Definitely. Yes. But lots of time spent at the HMV at Parramatta, um, looking at the wall of CDs for $29.99 back in the day, thinking about music. So, yeah. I remember CDs. (laughs) Today, you're a cyber psychologist and an expert in digital well-being, but I'm curious to know how you got onto this career path. Was the online world something you're always fascinated by, or was there a significant moment when you realised it was something you wanted to pursue? Yeah, I I guess... Mm, I was a bit of an early adopter. I wasn't a super duper um, kind of tech head. I mean, we're recording this on Discord, which I think I got onto a month ago because a bunch of psychologists are in a little um, chat with, but I I knew what Discord was, for instance. Um, So, yeah, back in the day, I guess I I learned to code my own MySpace page um, and I met some of my best friends actually through MySpace and through friends of friends on MySpace. Mm -hmm. But the way that I got into this really was, when I was a teacher. So I was teaching geography um, at high school and I was retraining to become a school counsellor. And the principal that I was working with at the time at Sydney Boys High um, basically said, you should go and check out what's happening with kids and games because I had to write um, a research project and I didn't know really what to do. And he was like, go and check out gaming and what's happening here. And that really got me very, very fascinated with what ended up being what I call digital nutrition, but uh, a thing that we generally know as... um, um, I guess, digital well-being um, and some of the issues that come from the psychology of using technology as much as we do. Fascinating. So you were a bit of an early adopter. Um, mm-hmm. Do you remember what your first uh, what your first venture into the internet was like? Was it was it through gaming or was it through something else? So you mentioned MySpace. That would have it been was, sorry. It that, was, <laughs> It was probably email, to tell you the truth. So I remember going to a lab at Sydney Uni where you'd have to log in to your email address for uni and then going to Bali um, probably in about 1997, 1998 and going into – I was with a friend who had a boyfriend at the time and she had to, you know, go and – talk uh email him every day or whatever whatever we were doing and so I was just emailing all my friends and hilariously I actually have printouts of a lot of those emails um in a file under my desk along with all the cds that I have never gotten (laughs) around to throwing out so yeah email was huge for me and then it evolved I guess into social media more than games um I know a bit about games and I play a few games here and there but definitely more the socials sort of side of things how did you get actually get onto the career path once you realised the internet or the online world was something that you're fascinated in? I guess what I'm getting at is how does someone become a cyber psychologist? 
Mm, well, I didn't even know that that was a thing and mm. it's only really become a thing in about the last five to six years in a kind of formal sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just a kind of passionate person, a multi-passionate person. I have ADHD, so I um, get really hyper-focused with things and uh, in this case, I was reading the newspaper and I read about Dr. Philip Tam and then I Googled him and I found out his email address and I said, hey, I want to talk to you about this stuff. And I really built this huge network using the internet um, of people all the way around the world um, who are looking at these kind of issues. So in about 2015, I got a Premier's Teachers Scholarship and I went over to the US and I talked to a lot of people about this. Um, yeah. And, and so the way I forged this career really was out of my own interest. It, it wasn't, you know, a uni course that I could go and do. Um, I, I really had to just network and, and make it happen. Um, and now there is a formal cyber psychology research group at Sydney university that I'm a part of. Mm. Um, and yeah, the whole area, I guess, is getting a lot clearer about, um, you know, the kind of research that we want to do and the impact that we want to have. For those people out there who may not be super familiar with cyber psychology, what does it kind of entail? What what sort of work do you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so for me, um, I am part-time just as a generalist psychologist, so I have my own private practice just in Burwood where I see people for, I guess, general mood disorders and anxiety, but I do have a bit of a niche working with families where there might be a young person who is really struggling with their use of technology. They're maybe not going to school because their gaming's getting in the way. Um, there can just be a lot of conflict and things like that. Um, so that's kind of what it looks like on a on a daily practice sort of level but then from a a bigger perspective it's more about the research and it's more about some of the interventions that we can do um, to support people and that can come from like e-mental health solutions so it can be designing really great evidence-based apps to help with doing some of the treatment of mental health conditions but it can also look at some of the dysfunction or some of the socio-cultural issues that come out of just how much time we do spend in front of screens Um, and and that obviously has positives and negatives Um, but trying to unpack some of those negatives and and really not get into this big moral panic and freak out that we do, especially we see all the time around boys and games. Mm. Um, look at it from a much more holistic perspective. Yeah, it's, it is really fascinating, isn't it? Because um, there, there seems to almost constantly be something in the media around potential for sort of digital technologies to cause harm, whether it's through too much gaming or whether it's through bullying, um, whether it's TikTok stealing people's data. Um, it certainly seems to, to be an issue that's not going anywhere. No, absolutely not. I think I, I got into this area at the perfect time in history yeah. where it's just absolutely blown up because so much of it is the socio-cultural aspect, not necessarily just the piece of technology. So it's, it's you know, when we look at things like um, gaming and then we, you know, I was a geographer before I was a teacher or a psychologist and then we look at the urban landscape and the high-rise development that's happening in Sydney, kids are going to be growing up in boxes where the only access to nature they really have is through VR Mm. because we're not planning for green spaces. We're not including that in part of what developers have to provide, you know, um, 
uh, in Burwood where I have my office, there's a thousand new apartments going up right near the station with no additional green spaces. So what else are kids expected to do when literally you don't have parklands um, or, or the amount of parklands that are available is like, you know, comparative to a, a chicken in a, a battery cage kind of thing. So, you know, there's big, bigger questions than just blaming technology or game designers for, you know, it in Verticom as being addictive. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's sort of a case of don't shoot the messenger, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and really look at some of the issues that are sitting underneath why young people choose to escape into games. Um, there's a whole bunch of research about, you know, the psychological needs of young people and, in fact, any human being met through something like a game where you have competence, you have control, and most importantly, you have connection. I guess I'm curious just to know, do you, are there any sort of statistics or figures you know about in terms of people who might be having problems with, mm-hmm. yeah? Yeah. It's probably only about 1% to 3% that would meet clinical criteria for um, a, a gaming disorder or a technology use disorder. Um it sort of varies across Western nations. We see different Asian countries having higher levels. And again, that's a lot of sociocultural stuff happening there around one child policies and, and you know, just the way society rolls, I guess. Mm. But um, most of the time in terms of that really clinical pointy end, it's about 1% to 3%. Um, most young people have really good relationships with their technological world. Other stuff can go wrong. So then there's other things like, you know, um, sharing of nudes or cyberbullying or some of the scamming and, and things like that, that that happen as well. But in terms of the kind of inverted commas addiction, um, which we still have a lot of conflict over whether or not it's a true addiction and, mm. and how we kind of um, talk about it and define it, um, it's, it's really a, a small and relatively stable number of um, people that we're finding. That was actually going to be my next question, which was would you consider... Um I guess I wanted to also ask about the people that you work with and um, as much as you can go into, what's mm-hmm. what they sort of look like, what type of people. Um, and, yes, would you agree with the statement that this sort of technology use is an addiction? Like, you know, people might have a drug addiction or alcohol addiction or sex addic- addiction. Yeah, it's a really massive question. So I think what's happened is our use of the word addiction has become quite diluted. So we talk about, you know, oh, I'm so addicted to, you know, insert whatever guilty pleasure that you're having at the moment. Um, When it comes to really clinical disorders like um, a drug use disorder and, in fact, in DSM, the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, they actually have a whole paragraph about why calling things addiction is a really not useful way (laughs) of talking about things because it's so polemic. Mm. So we're talking about young people being addicted to devices that we say they need and we hand out to them. We say, oh, you need it for learning, but please don't go and use this part of it. Um, I think there's a real problem with kind of aligning it to being like a drug. Can it be super problematic and really interrupt people's lives? Yes, for that one to maybe 3%. -hmm. And often what I see, and again, I'm not seeing um, kind of psychiatric populations, but I'm seeing populations of of kids where there is conflict or families where they're kind of putting up their hand and asking for help. Um, 
often it is young men, often it is in relation to escaping into gaming and using gaming because they're really good at it. So they build that competence, they have control, um, you know, they can control who they are, how they show up, what's, you know, kind of skins they wear, what um, tools they use, all of that sort of stuff. And then they have that connection with like-minded people that maybe you're not finding in the playground of your, your high school or in, you know, your daily life. So um, there are some, I guess, stereotypes around that. I also see lots of young women who aren't sleeping enough because they're spending lots of time on social media and, and in group chats. So yeah. it's it's a kind of broad range. And just to talk about social media for a moment, um, which would you, what would you say are the most dominant platforms for the people that you work with? I have a, I have a feeling I might know the answer to this, but I'd love, yeah. love so you to Yeah, so TikTok share. is massive at the yeah. moment, obviously. That's really taken off over the last probably two years. Yes. Um, but Instagram's still pretty strong. Um, yeah. Young people generally aren't on uh, Facebook. Yeah. Um, I mean, they might have an account, but that's kind of just a launch pad, um, you know. But, yeah, generally it's TikTok and, and really specific areas of TikTok too because the, the TikTok algorithm's a bit more sticky than some of the other ones. Um, and the, the kind of content and different communities within TikTok are, are very specific as well. You know, I still haven't got a TikTok account. It's one of those things that I haven't dabbled in yet because I'm just not sure what I would post. Um, mm. <laughs> I just don't know what, what video myself doing something. What, so what I'm going to revolutionise things here for you, Sarah, and say okay. you actually don't have to post to be in a social media platform. You can just look. Oh, you can just watch. Um, yeah, and I have to keep away from it myself because I am so fascinated by it and there's so much to kind of examine that I just completely stay away from TikTok. I, I don't trust myself. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess many of us can be viewing TikTok and understanding some of the trends on TikTok because one of the features of it and the, the way that it got, I guess, so big is that it's so shareable. So you can share out to all of those platforms. It has the, you know, the TikTok stamp, so you can always tell where it's sort of originated, but it is, um, yeah, across all of those platforms. So you don't even have to be on it to to be up to date. So I'm curious to talk about digital wellness or digital well-being. How can someone, if they want to be proactively mindful of the digital well-being, um, how can they ensure that they are looking after themselves? Can you share perhaps some top tips with our listeners for maintaining a nutritious digital diet? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this really starts with your sleep. So if you can make sure that your sleep is protected um, and you're getting decent quality and quantity of sleep, that's the first thing that I do with most of my clients is check in that their sleep is okay. I guess the, the main thing is that we do only have 24 hours in the day. So mm. wrangling your time to some degree is really, really helpful. And really um, from the digital nutrition analogy, sort of snacking on technology rather than having these big, long feasts. So mm. social media especially is kind of like a sushi train of information that keeps going round and round and round. It's a bit of a bottomless pit. Uh, so you want to be able to just dip in and dip out and be really intentional about what you're doing 
So I share the three M's of digital nutrition, which are mindful, meaningful, and moderate. So if you're moderating what you're doing and then also how you're responding, you have meaning and you're aligned to your goals in what you're consuming and you're kind of exercising some of those tools like the unfollow and mute buttons and that you're actually quite mindful, like do I have time to spend here? Should I be working on my thesis? Should I be parenting in some cases, Mm -hmm. um, that can really help you reframe um, your use of technology. So I'm someone who has had both depression and anxiety, and I've been to several psychologists in my time. In those situations, therapy consisted of one-on-one sessions over the course of a time frame, and they mostly use CBT or DBT techniques. Is this similar to how you work or is your approach different? I know you've mentioned you start with sleep. Mm -hmm. So I'm trained in CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, as well as ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. So I use a kind of combination of those, but I also do a lot of psychoeducation. So for some of the young people coming to see me, they literally don't understand what the function of sleep is. And, And I guess even some adults don't understand that. Um, sleep is actually a way that your brain cleanses itself of the the kind of exhaust fumes from thinking. So when we think, it produces um, waste products and those waste products get swashed out through all the different stages of sleep that we have. So when we're consuming more information than any generation of humans before us and then we're not sleeping as much, the actual time available for our brain to, to cleanse and wash out all of those waste products is actually limited and we wake up in this kind of brain fog. We're grumpy and, and, and moody. And sometimes a moody teenager um, or a depressed teenager is very, very similar to a sleep deprived teenager. And all the parents out there who have experienced that sleeplessness will, will understand what I'm talking about as well. So um, it's, it's really a combination. And, and I work in a very client led way. So it's really about what the client needs and their kind of personality. So even in my intake, I say, have you been to therapy before? What worked and what didn't? Um, what do you like about therapy and what do you hate about it? So that we can really work in with, with your preferences um, for that. Otherwise, it's, you know, you've got to do the work as well. You've got to do a bit of homework and you've got to try things on in your life. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's generally my approach. Okay. It is fascinating about sleep. Um, I certainly do a lot of thinking at the moment. I think my brain's got way too many exhaust fumes mm. <laughs> and I do end up having some some interesting, very unusual dreams. Yeah, dreams are really fascinating because sometimes they're literally the byproduct. So all of the ideas and thoughts that you're kind of putting into the trash can and you're sorting through in, when you're sleeping, obviously not um, – physically sorting through but your brain is going through and working out what to send to longer term storage and what probably you don't need and there's lots of theories about sleep one of which um sorry dreaming one of which is that it's giving you an opportunity to rehearse different scenarios and play things out so that when if those scenarios were to come up you actually are kind of more prepared and rehearsed as to what to do so that's the classic like oh i went to work with no pants on it's like oh don't forget to wear pants wear pants I mean it seems very obvious but it's actually like a protective situation like don't forget to grab your phone or like in this weird situation where you know flying unicorns come and try and steal your washing off the line what would you do um so yeah dreams dreams are fascinating so today smartphone addiction is quite a major concern um 
for people of all ages, many people, myself included, feel the need to look at their phones the first and last thing of the day. Um, My phone is generally next to my bed, which is probably a big no-no. How do you think that we can take back the tech and address the potentially this potentially problematic trend or ensure that there is greater awareness around it? Yeah, well, I'm going to be kind of biased here and say we all need to learn more about digital nutrition and, and, you know, philosophies around um, understanding the impacts of technology in our life. I think it's possible to go to bed with technology and then wake up with technology if you can really kind of control what you're looking at. But the thing about it is when I open my email first thing in the morning, I don't really know what I'm going to get and I don't know how that's going to hijack me into a particular way of being, right? So good news or bad news or whatever happens, you know, in my DMs or the things that I'm fed literally on social media can really have an impact and I'm not completely in control of whether or not I wake up to an awful image of what's happening in the Ukraine first thing in the morning that can really, you know, impact your day. Um, So I think we need to be more salient of just the level of information that we're consuming and the content potentially of some of that information. And again, we can't always um, fully control what comes to us on that social media sushi train. Um, so that mindful, meaningful and moderate, again, I think applies here to think, am I, am I really in the point where my brain is ready for whatever is going to be in my, my inbox this morning? Um, do I really need to consume that now? And what are the things that are really important to me that I can focus on to begin with? So um, I think a lot of people say if you, you win the morning, you win the day. So um, and I am not a 5am in the morning person, like I am not, you know, a miracle morning person, but I definitely think that, you know, how you start is probably how you're going to continue. Mm. As this is a feminist radio segment and podcast, how has feminism been a part of your journey? And just to be clear, I'm an intersectional feminist. Um, so I believe feminism is about equality for all. It's not just women's rights. Sure. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I have a unicorn feminist jumper um, from the feminist trash store on right now by Ooh. coincidence, actually. Um, I think look, I, I need think, one of those. Oh, it's it's so good. A Sydney-based artist called Joanna. Um, I think I sort of first even became aware that women were different to boys when I was in Papua New Guinea as a six-year-old and by, you know, this crazy coincidence that I went with my grandparents to visit my aunt and uncle there. And I had no idea that really boys and girls were different. I was just running around playing with the local kids chasing frogs and I got told that I needed to sit at the dinner table and um, be basically with the white people and that because I was a girl I shouldn't be doing those things. And I that confused the hell out of me, to be honest. I was like, what do you mean? What's that got to do with it? Um, so at that point I think I got a really early in- lesson in I'm going to play with the boys and the frogs and your rules are really stupid. <laughs> so that was, that was probably my earliest take as a six-year-old on, on feminism. Um, I worked at an all-boys school and was the only female in a staff room and, and very few females in that school in when I was 25, you know, coming up to 15 years ago. Wow. Um, and so I, I, I've been in kind of male-orientated environments and not, not that I don't notice that I'm female, but um, I guess I haven't felt um, it's held me back in, in any particular ways. I went to a, a, a Mercy Convent school, all-girls convent school for 13 years too. So I think the Mercy nuns actually, did a really good job in, in maintaining my, my feminism throughout too. 
So one final question, where can my listeners find you, follow you and connect with you if they want to support the work that you're doing or reach out and ask for some assistance if they might need it? Sure, thank you. Well, yes, I love to hear from people and hear about all of the kind of challenges that they're having with their digital wellbeing. So um, if you can remember the two words, digital nutrition um, and or Jocelyn Brewer, and you throw that into your favourite search engine, you will find me and basically only me. Um, So I'm across basically all of the apps and, and things like that. And I've just launched actually with a funny little story to end with. In the middle of the pandemic, I met somebody who is in New York and was really interested in that the kind of food analogy with technology. Mm. Um, and we've just created and launched a beautiful new website called Metaversal Wellbeing, which is really taking digital wellbeing to that next level to think about what is it going to be like when we are all walking around with headsets on and um, actually that next iteration of the future internet. So um, Metaversal Wellbeing is another way you'll find um, a new project I've launched literally yesterday. Thank you so much for your time today, Jocelyn. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you um, and I could pick your brain for hours, I'm sure. Um, But yes, thank you once again. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Well, we have served you another kick-ass episode of Feminist Fridays for this week. But before you head off, He's a track by Zane, David Harness and Rob Rhythm called Sending My Love because here at Feminist Fridays we're all about sending the love out in both the cyber and the offline world.
conversation, no, it's letting me 